As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined, as always, by Bruce Feldman. We are recording on Signing Day Part 2, the February Signing Day, and we have A-list guest today, Bruce, the new coach of the Texas Longhorns, Steve Sarkeesian, will be on in just a little bit. Um, anything in particular stand out to you about Signing Day? The thing that, you know, obviously a lot of the heavy lifting, I feel like 90% of the heavy lifting now obviously goes on in mid-December. But the thing that stood out to me was, and we touched on this on our, I touched on this a little bit on, on our Fox show on TV, is just Jim Harbaugh, for all of the, um, the noise and the negativity that surrounded the Michigan program and his, his tenure there, um, and, the, and the questions about whether he was going to still be the coach, finished really strong. I mean, if you look at what 247 now has them with a top 10 class, uh, they pulled in three big defensive linemen uh, just today, which is significant, um, four-star guys to go with uh, a five-star quarterback and J.J. McCarthy, who they got earlier, and one of the most dynamic players in the country, Donovan Edwards, who's a running back, and, and Xavier Worthy, who's arguably the fastest receiver in the country. Those were guys earlier on the offensive side of the ball. So that got my attention. I mean, to get, to get uh, players like Rayshon Benny today, George Rooks, another big time defensive lineman was like, they have a staff shakeup. They have a much younger staff now and we'll see if it translate on the field or how quickly it may translate. Yeah, I mean, I guess your hope is that, a lot of those guys can come in and make an impact right away. Because if you watched Michigan, I would say the past two seasons, but certainly this past season, like, I don't think it's the issue is, is entirely coaching, like bring in some new coaches and Michigan will be able to win 10 games next year. Recruiting slipped. They, there were misses. Um, you know, whatever the ranking said, like clearly the roster that they have right now is not what it was earlier in his tenure. So Top 10 class is a great sign. Can they get maybe some of those guys to fill 
some obvious holes they're missing, especially the way their defense regressed so badly. Right. And I think that is key because, as you said, um, they had some highly ranked classes before. The class from 2017 was a top five class. The class just two years ago, I think, was ranked number eight in the country. So it's not like they hadn't been getting some highly touted guys, but you just kind of go through the list. Some of the five stars maybe at best played like four stars and some of them, you know, ended up like two or, you know, three star guys. So I think that's got to be key that those players need to show up on Saturdays and, and really be developmental guys too. So the other big college football news this week had nothing to do with signing day. It had nothing to do with actual college football, but at long last EA sports, under popular demand for I don't know how long now. How how often do you get the I get the emails, you get the emails. When are they bringing back NCAA football? When are they bringing back NCAA football? Uh, they shocked us all on Tuesday morning with the Twitter announcement that EA Sports is in fact bringing back college football. It lit up our staff uh, Slack channel like nothing else. Now, if you get into the fine print, it's not going to be called NCAA football, at least not at first. It's EA Sports college football. There is no deal with the NCAA. We are not yet at the point where you can put the actual players in the game because NIL legislation is is still stalled. Um, but they at least have the rights to the stadiums and the logos and the jerseys. Um, like, I don't know, like you've played the game. I've played the game. We love the game. If that's, I think that they're hoping that all the NIL stuff will come through in the meantime and However, you know, if it takes two years to develop this game, that hopefully that'll be all lined up by then. But if not, would you still be as excited for a game that is, you know, Michigan against Ohio State, but with a bunch of generic players? Probably not. Like the thing that, and I, you know, I go back to some of these EA sports games and we all have, or most of us, I feel like have some kind of personal connection to the games. And one of the things that, you know, I loved about some of these EA sports games, especially. And one of my favorite games was the NHL games that like, I remember NHL 94, 95, whatever, um, where it was, I, I just felt like because it was connected to supposedly real players with real abilities, um, it just was different, right? It just felt different. It didn't, you know, I don't know. So if just having the logos and everything, it just feels like it's not going to be the same thing. I think people are super fired up. I think the uh, enthusiasm may wane a little bit if this takes several years to come together. But again, like I always thought that, you know, I mean, they, they had to settle a huge lawsuit over having, you know, used the players uh, likeness without, they never used their names, but if you if you've ever played NCAA football, you knew exactly who that this was Vince Young and this was Pat White and, you know, with their number by their numbers. Um, so they are I'm like they're never going to start that game again unless they can be absolutely sure that they're not going to get sued again. Um, so I was a little surprised that they're going ahead with it now, but it. But I do think it's kind of like well, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not a video game designer. I'm sure it takes a long time to design a game from scratch, and you want to at least get started on that and have it well into the process so that if in sometime in 2022 they can reach a deal to where the players get compensated for using their likeness in the game that you could update it pretty quickly. But I don't know. The coolest thing about Tuesday was that, and we published a round table on our site, which just like all of our right, David Oven and Chris Vanini and Chris Camarani, all these guys talking about going to Walmart at midnight on the day that the game would come out or, you know, all their friends getting together and playing and seeing who could 
turned their um, you know Mac school into the five-time national champs. Many people listening here have never even heard of this game, but I'm sure many of you have did and played it and loved it, and it just reminded me like like it's just part of the college. But another yet another one of those things about like geeking out on college football is when you've stayed up till four in the morning building out your your um, Northwestern dynasty mode team uh, to to take it to the BCS championship game. Is that your all-time glory moment of or, or lasting memory of the EA franchise? My lasting memory, of, uh, I mean, look, it's been a long time since since I even had a, a video game uh, like a like, that I had a PlayStation to play it on, but a console. A console, that's right. Uh, and I think it was 05 or 06. It, Reggie Bush was on the cover. I remember that. Uh, yeah, I took that Northwestern team to the national championship basically just by figuring out that there was one play a slant pass that if you snap the ball and immediately press down on the x button as as hard as possible it's got to be catch it over the middle and break it for a touchdown like every it was like it was the the playstation version of the tua to jerry judy alabama offense last year like the slant is open every time um i had one where so i used to cover the uh, Elite 11 every year when it was in Elisa Viejo, which is in Orange County. Um, and it was much more informal and much smaller, but EA would, EA Sports would sponsor it. And so it was, I think they had the game a little before everybody else would, it would come out. And so they had a bunch of, not a bunch, but a few uh, stations set up. And I remember there was a break and I was just kind of sitting there looking at, you know, like you could play it while I was just sitting there or whatever. And then somebody walked up behind me and it was one of the campers at the time who was Ryan Mallet or is Ryan Mallet. And he was like, do you want to play? And I'm like, uh, sure. So we played, I eventually lost on maybe the last play. And I remember like, it was weird to have like a trash talking back and forth with somebody you don't know who at the same time is like, you know, I was covering this. And um, so I was like, I don't know if I like him or hate him at this point when he walked away. <laughs> So I don't know if it was endearing or, or you know, whatever. Um, but that was like, I, I don't know. It's it's funny to now see like my son has gotten into Madden, you know, and it's like you can play Madden on your phone and um, just to sit there. And it was like, you look at his roster and he's got like uh, Luke Falk is the quarterback he's unless he's stuck with, but on his roster. I mean, you just kind of see how it really um, how far the game has come, how far the games have come since, you know, what I remember, like there's a video game and I don't think you'll even remember this, but it was just basically in the days of like, you know, Atari where they were like, I don't know if you may have had five on five football and they were all in the same color, you know, it was like a blue team against the red and the figurines were just that it was like, you could kind of run one version of an option play where you'd run your quarterback would run to the bottom of the screen. Everybody would follow you. And then you could pass the ball to the top of the screen. Once you figure it out, Ooh, this is work. Cause then they're not going to be able to keep up with the other guy. And just to know where that went compared to where the game is now. Um, you know, I think it's, it's very nostalgic for a lot of people on a lot of levels. It's very cool. Uh, I look forward to, I hope first I hope if they do get the the name and they can call it NCAA football 23 24 whatever that's going to be. Uh, and I also think that they should put out one time only once they're allowed to covers for all of the players who would have been on it had the game continued. Like Joe Burrow tweeted yesterday 
like all he ever wanted was to be on the cover of of NCAA football. And then it, as soon as he graduates, they of course he would have been on the cover this year. So give Joe Burrow his cover. Give Baker Mayfield his cover. Lamar Jackson his cover. Um, one time only thing. We should probably get to our guest. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, well, we are pleased to be joined by the new head coach of the Texas Longhorns, Steve Sarkeesian. And Steve, the first thing I wanted to ask you about, I mean, it is signing day and that we're recording this on, but it's not not like signing day of old. Most of this class signed before you were announced as the coach. Um, and it's also with, with COVID this year, I mean, I would guess you haven't even necessarily met most of these kids yet. Like normally you would get on a plane and go do in-homes. So what is it like to, to welcome a recruiting class that you, uh, you know, basically have, will have met virtually? Yeah, it was, it was definitely a unique time. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that really have changed, you know, over the last, I guess, probably 14 to 16 months. You know, when you start talking about the early visit dates, um, then you start talking about the early signing period. Uh, and then you start talking, you throw COVID on top of that. Um, and then becoming a new head coach, it, it was, it was definitely unique, but I thought we embraced it pretty well. Um, you know, we had 19 kids sign, um, really mid-year and of that, you know, of the 19, you know, almost half of those are already here on campus. So that part made it a little easier when I got on board, you know, when I got here, they were already here on campus. So the first part of that was making a connection with them prior to them even coming to school and their families. The next order of business was making a connection with the other kids that signed in December that are going to be coming in the summertime. And then it was shifting the focus to what did we want to do with the kind of the last few remaining spots and uh, trusting the connections that we've had with some of the kids we were recruiting, uh, trying to assess the roster needs that we would have, uh, and then p- potentially looking into the transfer portal to fill some of those needs as well. So all in all, you know, I, I thought it went well. I thought the one thing we did strategically is leave ourselves a little bit of wiggle room on the roster, maybe coming out of spring ball uh, in this day and age of college football with the transfer portal of maybe filling a couple needs there as well uh, to give us a little wiggle room. So I thought it went well. Uh, there was no, there was no, you know, real exact science behind it. It's never had, I don't know if anyone's ever had to deal with it this way before, uh, but I thought it went as well as it could have. I wanted to touch on the roster needs as you, you take over this. And I know you've evaluated everybody who you inherit in the program individually from watching film. So everything I had heard was that there's definitely some holes maybe at, at, you know, on the edge rusher defensive end spot, 
the highest profile guy in the Texas class is JT Sanders, who was a top 15 guy for 247. I know he was a guy that some of your colleagues at Alabama tried to get there. So you have the need at, 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 on the edge rusher side, but also he's a really dynamic offensive force. So you as a guy who has been obviously a very successful offensive coach, will you try to play him both ways? Cause he may be a bigger need on the defensive side of the ball or how do you, how will you kind of balance where he fits in terms of what you need and what you think is best for the program? You know, I had this discussion with JT. It's, it's, a, it's a great question because, when, you know, in some of our initial calls when I took the job, I said, hey, clearly you can play on either side of the ball. And the one thing I said, you know, with him not coming in the summer, let us get through spring practice and really assess what are the needs on the roster. You know, where we came in and we took a grad transfer, Ray Thornton from LSU, who kind of fills that role as an outside backer, defensive end type player. Today we signed David Abiara, who kind of fits that kind of mold. But when, when he comes here in summer, wherever that need is, that'll be the focus of where he begins and starts. All that being said, and Bruce, you, you know me well enough now, when I had Austin Safarian Jenkins, he played tight end, but we used, utilized him as a third down pass rusher. When we signed John Ross at, Ross at Washington, he started at wide receiver, but we played him at nickel on defense on third down. When we had a Dory, when we signed a Dory at SC as a true freshman, he started at corner, but we played him about eight to 10 snaps a game on offense. So this isn't foreign to me to kind of go down this road with some of these players that have the ability uh, to do that. And I, and I really believe JT does. How it all shakes out and plays out, you know, I think time will tell. Um, but I, I won't shy away from that if he's capable enough to do it. I'm curious, you ended up having uh, a couple of quarterbacks. I don't know if you were watching it live. I know you guys were busy with Alabama stuff, but when they played the bowl game, Casey Thompson comes in when Sam Ellinger gets hurt, plays fantastic against CU. And then from guys I know in the program at Texas, they rave about Hudson Card. And I went back and looked and I realized your your buddy, Jeff Banks, who's now with you at Texas, tried recruiting him at Alabama. And obviously you guys ended up with uh, Bryce Young was a terrific prospect as well. What did you know about that spot? Um, and what have you been able to kind of learn just in the time you've been there about the guys who could be your trigger man on this offense going forward? Well, I think, I think both of you guys know me well enough to know I probably wouldn't take a job that didn't have a quarterback on the roster. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been, I've been pretty fortunate enough in my career to be around some pretty good players at that position um, who have not only the physical traits, but the, but the mental makeup uh, to, be, to play really good at the position. And I, I do believe it's the most important position in sports. Um, it's definitely the most important position in college football. And uh, we're fortunate. You know, we've got two young men right now on our current roster that, are, that, that can play. Um, you know, Casey, clearly, you know, I had a chance to watch that game. I had gotten home from work kind of right before the end of the first half and just happened to watch the second half. And I'm like, geez, Texas is in pretty good hands here. They got a pretty good guy. But then I had to remind myself when I got into really looking at this job, I did a real extensive eval on Hudson card. Um, and then I got here and, and heard a lot of the similar, same things you've been hearing. So I feel like we're in good hands in the short term future. I feel like we're in good hands in the long term future. All that being said, it's a position that you have to recruit every year. Um, 
to what fits you. And I think, you know, I think our system is one that is versatile enough where we can kind of play with different styles at that position. Uh, but at the end of the day, you have to address that position year in and year out in recruiting. I, in your press conference, you know, you, you mentioned something similar about how the days of having five quarterbacks on the roster are over. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, that you're intentionally leaving spots open, you know, in case you need needs off transfer portal. So I mean, what, what does quarterback recruiting look like today? Do you just go into each year under the assumption that you're going to need to get another one, you know, regardless of you might not know yet who's going to transfer, but just the way this position works, whoever's not starting, you, you do you assume is going to transfer next year? You're going to need to bring somebody else in new. Well, I think you're right. I, I think you, I don't want, I, I hate to use the word assume, but you have to be prepared for um, the Mac Joneses of the world that sit and wait for four years for their turn are a little few and far between at one school. Generally, they try to go somewhere else. It's the Joe Burrow path or the Justin Fields path, right? Mac was a little bit of an anomaly in this day and age where he stuck it out through Jalen, through Tua, waited his turn, knew Bryce Young was coming on campus, the number one player in the country, and competed and earned the job and then ultimately had the success that he had. Um, I think that's a great trait that he has. I think perseverance is, is a little bit lost right now in our society, and we got to instill more of that here in our program, quite frankly. Um, but I do think you have to address that position year in and year out. Um, I, I don't think that you can say, hey, we're good for the next two or three years. I think you have to continually try to build that room um, because the fact of the matter is, you know, you can look around the country. Very few colleges have got five scholarship quarterbacks on their roster like maybe we used to have 15 years ago. I mean, I remember sitting in a room at USC with, I mean, it was Carson Palmer, it was Matt Castle, it was Matt Weiner, it was Billy Hart. Uh, we were just signing Mark Sanchez. I mean, it was, it was tremendous, right? I don't know if those days are going to exist anymore. Um, and, and, and college football has allowed for that to happen, right, wrong, or indifferent. The transfer portal has granted that ability to do that. Um, so I do think you have to address it year in and year out. And some years you may have to take two, which, again, that's a little different story to tell. But I do think we need to be upfront and honest if that's a direction we're going to go so that kids know what they're getting into. Sark, I wanted to ask you, last year I did a book with Ed Ogeron. That's a guy, obviously, you know very well from your time on the USC yep. staff back in those days. And at the core, at the, really at the core of the book was, was really about his evolution as a coach, but also as a man and, and the, the lessons he talked about that he learned from being in the recovering process. And especially as it gave him the tools to really look at himself critically. Um, I, wanted, I was curious how do you think going through the process you've gone through has impacted you as a coach and how you probably grown and evolved maybe in the last, the last six or seven years? Yeah. I mean, I think exponentially, um, you know, in our profession, especially when you're maybe in the mode I was in early on in my career, Bruce, and we go way back as well. I was the hottest thing cooking, man. I was on a fast track and I think my ego um, really took over me of who I was as a person and probably suppressed some better qualities and traits that I possessed that kind of got me to that point. And then when you, when you get dealt that humble pie and, and you don't have a job and you're wondering, am I ever going to be a head coach again? Or what's my journey going to look like? And how am I going to, 
get back to what I love to do, um, you, you have to just dig back into what got you there. And that's just being the best person you can be every day, be the best coach, the best father, the best husband, the best son, whatever that is, the best friend. Um, and that's really what I tried to do. And, you know, when I went to Alabama in 2016 as an analyst and I was working with Lane and coach Saban and, um, coach Loxley, I just tried to be the best resource I could be and, and really see how Nick Saban did it. And then I had a chance to go to Atlanta for two years and work with Dan Quinn, another man I really admire. And I got a chance to be around Matt Ryan and Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley, some really cool people, Alex Mack. Um, and I just tried to take that same approach in the way I coach these guys. I told myself every day I walk in that building, I'm going to be the best version of Steve Sarkeesian I can be. And how close can I get to that every single day to be a, a great resource for these guys? And as I worked my way through it, I thought they, they very, were really um, kind of latched onto that about me. And I thought it kind of permeated throughout the building. I thought I was making a real impact on professionals. And I just said, when the opportunity came, I was going to take maybe a couple different NFL jobs. When, when Coach Saban offered me the job to come back to Alabama as the coordinator, I just thought to myself, man, if I brought this approach to college football, what kind of an impact I could have on 18 to 22 year old kids now. And it just totally took off. And that's really where the all the whole all gas, no brakes thing kicked in for me because I started using that. Like that's the way of life. That's the way I go for every day, no matter what the project is, you know, whether it was recruiting, coaching, um, developing relationships and the kids bought on, bought onto it and caught onto it. And so to have this opportunity now, I just don't feel like, uh, I'm in a different space as far as it's more about others than it is about me. Um, it's more about what can I do to help them. And in return, you get something greater in return for me personally at that point. So the perspective has shifted, right? The focus has shifted. The approach has shifted. Um, you know, and the end result is you, you develop really good relationships. You have people that want to then try to emulate the same thing you bring. And that's being the best version of themselves every day that ultimately, um, you know, maybe you end up with a better version of a team every day. And, and in the biggest moments, you're the best version of yourselves. Curious, when did you end up, your name had come up with several other Power Five jobs over the last year or so. When did you start to realize, hey, I'm going to, I think if I keep doing what I'm doing, I am going to get another shot at running a program. Well, you know, I, I really felt like, you know, when I was in Atlanta, uh, Atlanta helped me at the highest level in the biggest moments with the best players in the world remind me that I'm, I'm good at what I do. And I, I, don't, I don't say that arrogantly. I just say that confidently that, you know, I'm pretty good at what I do. And when the opportunity came to go to Alabama and I got to really dig into these players and teach and coach and see the response and see the growth in these guys – uh, you know, what I do is, is pretty good and kids can get it. And then when interest started to occur and people started to call, I said, okay, th this is probably going to happen. You know, it's right there in about year one at Alabama. Now it's, I want to make sure it's the right one. And I want to make sure that the next one I do, if I decide to do it, that it's a place that I can have longevity at. Um, you know, I really want stability for me and my family and the profession. And I wanted to go somewhere where there would be the resources, the support, um, the ability to recruit to, 
um, the history and tradition that is needed. I think it's a lot easier to create something that you want when there's a living example of what it looked like before at the same place. And clearly all those things added up here at Texas. And I had turned down some good jobs before this one presented itself and I didn't know, but I just kind of hung on to, there's going to be something down the road. That's going to be the right one. Um, and Texas called. And at that point, it didn't take long to say that's the right one. I, I'm going to go take this job. So Sark, Bruce asked you about your, your personal development. And I'm curious, you just brought up in terms of your professional development and, you know, like you said, being a very good, uh, being very good at what you do, this the Alabama national championship run. I mean, we've all, we all sat there marveling for three months at, at this seemingly unstoppable offense and the ways you would get Devonte Smith open. And I'm just curious at this point as a play caller, like when we see that out there, which of the many influences you had are we seeing the most? Like how much of what you were running at Alabama was based on what Alabama was already doing or maybe what you did in Atlanta or, or, or other stops along the way? I really think, Stuart, it's, it's, been, it's been a real evolution for me. Um, you know, when you go back, to the days when we were at when we were at USC with Carson and then Matt and Reggie and all those guys, there's still a lot of principles that we run today that we were running, you know, back in 2002, uh, which is amazing. We're 18 years later and there's still plays we're running. Uh, a guy that has had a, a real impact on me that I still run a lot of his stuff up was like one year I spent with North Turner and the Oakland Raiders and his ability to, to play action pass and throw the ball down the field. Then when I went to Washington, you know, I inherited uh, a spread zone read quarterback, you know, run option offense with Jake Locker. And so we had to incorporate some of those things to give Jake the best chance to be successful. And then really there is when I went to no huddle my last year, we started to not huddle. We started to go fast. We had Keith Price, which was a lot of fun. And we were kind of working our way through that and working my way through that when I went back to SC and Cody had a great year as junior year. And then I went to Atlanta and I inherited a lot of Kyle Shanahan offense and some of the play action pass things he did there, moving the quarterback, moving the quarterback in the pocket. And through all of that time, I was dabbling through the RPO stuff. When I was at Washington, I was dabbling in the RPOs at, at USC with Nelson Aguilar and Juju and those guys. And then I brought the RPO stuff to the NFL, which was a little foreign to those guys. Then when I showed up back at Alabama, they were an RPO-based team under, under Loxley. And so it was now trying to tie it all together um, of the run game, the, the play-action pass game, the RPO game, and making it really quarterback-friendly, uh, but also putting a lot of stress on the defense. So we've evolved over the years – but I can't say it's just one offense. I think it's a combination of all the guys I've been around, all the players that you learn from. Um, and we think we've put something together that um, is a lot of fun, you know, for the players. It's a lot of fun for us. We, we, we definitely call a very aggressive style of, of offensive football. Um, and you get to get to that point by earning and gaining the trust of the players that they're going to make good decisions and, and execute the calls. Okay, so earlier on your and uh, your uh, post signing day press conference, the one of the things I, I heard you say that kind of stuck to me was, I want to make sure that this is I'm clear on something because it's very important. We have to be the best developmental staff in the country. 
And I suspect that is one of those easier said than done things. So what does it take? You've seen the process. You've obviously learned from Pete. Pete was great at developing players too. What do you think it takes to, to be that, to be the best developmental staff in the country? Well, I think one is, you know, I think the first thing is you got to have a direct connection and a direct tie-in with your strength and conditioning staff and your football staff. Uh, it can't be football for 15 practices uh, of spring and then you're 27 or 28 in, in training camp and then go play a season. And then the rest of it's just off-season conditioning. I think there needs to be some crossover there. I think your strength staff needs to understand what we're trying to do from a football standpoint. I think our football staff needs to understand what they've been trained to do from a strength and conditioning standpoint. So that crossover piece is big. I think two, we can't just put our focus on our frontline players and our starters. I think we have to have a real plan for our developmental players, you know, our freshmen, our sophomores, so that, you know, because in this day and age right now, Everybody wants to look at, does he come in and start as a true freshman? And if he doesn't, social media says he's a bust. Well, we can't fall prey to what social media tells us. We have to develop all 85 scholarship players on our roster so that we can build a team. Um, because whether the kid is on kickoff coverage or he's on three special teams or he's a frontline starter or he's a Devontae Smith, for an example, who wins the Heisman Trophy – but he's the gunner on the punt team. The developmental piece of it all is you have to develop everybody in your organization and you have to do it in unison. You can't just pick specific individuals and now you've got a split roster of some guys developing and some guys not. Well, Sark, I think if we could go for another hour, Bruce and I would probably have enough questions to, to ask you. There, there's so much to catch up on, but we know uh, time is short here. So we just really want to thank you for coming on the Audible and and obviously, best of luck um, as you begin your tenure at Texas. Of course, guys. Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Look forward to catching up another time soon. Talk to you soon. Hook them. Okay, Stu, let's get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. Stu, the first question I feel like is a Stu question. This is from David S. Eisen. Gentlemen, I resubmit my questions below. Plus, this one's for Stu. Okay, Stu, I won't take offense. SC didn't quite make your way too early top 25, while ESPN had them at number nine, and others have them at number 13, others being Sporting News and 247. CBS had them at 14. USA Today had them at 17. I tend to think you are, you are closer than they are. So what is it that you and I see that the others don't um that we're being realistic i mean i think uh usc is one of those teams obviously that will always benefit from the brand and you know and i'm guilty of this myself a lot of times where you when you're looking at like early top 25s you just you give a certain team a certain benefit of the doubt because while we know they're going to be talented in usc's case i'm sure the people that are ranking them high is in large part is keaton slovis who's great um, but if you actually watched USC this past year, like I have had pretty high expectations for them. Uh, I thought they would win the Pac-12, um, and of course they almost did, but they were they were not that different than the past Clay Helton USC teams, I think you would agree. Like very underwhelming, played down to the level of talent competition, and then so many of their best players either 
you know, or, or turned pro or, or not using the senior year. So Slovis is back. Um, Drake London is back. But like all their, I feel like all their best defensive players are like, I'm not sure what you would look at the in terms of the guys who are coming back and be like, oh yeah, that's a top 10 team. Yeah, I don't know if I would see them as a top 10, top 15 team. I think I would have them in the top 25. Like you said, Slovis is back. He's played a lot. They do have still talented receivers. They have some talented skill guys. Uh, I also don't think the Pac-12 is hard. To me, the Pac-12 is pretty shaky, even by Pac-12 standards at this point. So I would have them in the top 25, but I'd probably have them... I guess USA Today was the one who had them the furthest down at 17. That's probably around where I would have them, um, somewhere in that range. By the way, I have some encouraging news for Pac-12 fans. You know, we get a lot of, like, self-defeatist, uh, uh, how bad is the Pac-12 kind of vibes on this show. Um, Bill Connolly recently came out with his returning production rankings. So instead of just, like, returning starters, it's an, it's actually based on the, what the who the starter who the starters and everybody else is coming back like what have they actually done mm-hmm. and i was it was interesting i mean first of all a lot more teams have a lot more coming back because of the uh free year of eligibility but the pac-12 in particular the returning production rankings for 2021 number one in the whole thing is louisiana but then number two is ucla number five is washington state Number seven is Oregon State. Number eight is Utah. Number nine is Oregon. Number 11 is Arizona State. Number 12 is Colorado. And number 15, Washington. A lot of them weren't very good, but the point is, if, you, if like me, you believe that the, 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 the backbone for a good seat or the, the sign of an improvement to come, I guess, is the most important part. If you're a team that wasn't very good, uh, but you were young and suddenly you bring back most of that team, that's a pretty good sign you might be poised for a breakthrough. I did note that Indiana was very high in his returning production rankings last year. So all this is a way of what do you mean if what do you mean if you're like you? You are like you. You did your top twenty-five, and none of those teams were in it. Um, I'm saying that I think the conference as a whole would be will be better. I would guess. I mean, a UCLA, one of these teams, a UCLA, a Utah, maybe uh, certainly. I mean, Oregon's in my top twenty-five, high in my top twenty-five. Like some of these teams probably will be top 25 teams. But in general, like if you're looking for signs of hope, will the conference be better next season? I, I would say how could it not be when like disproportionately even Cal's in the top 20. Like I think probably what happened was because their seasons weren't real seasons, like they barely played five, six games, that more of their seniors opted to come back than, than you know maybe a team that where the seniors felt like they got a full season in. All right, from Kevin M. in West Lynn, Oregon. As another round of the coaching carousel winds down, I find myself rolling my eyes ever more frequently when I hear the coaching hire justified as, quote, the guy who developed some big-name player, usually a QB. If they happen to have two good players at a position, they refer to as whispers at that position. I feel like many fortunes have been made because a coach was in the right place when a great player came along. Do you think coaches get too much credit, including promotions, for the success of players who probably would have done just as well for another coach? It's a good question. Um, I think the answer is somewhere in the middle of this. Like, look, what are you going to define a good coach as, as by, I mean, do you think I would use this example? 
if there is a guy who takes players and you could say this about, for example, Iowa state, I feel like you could certainly say this about Iowa where there are guys who are not seen as highly touted. Maybe there are two, two, two star guys, maybe there are three star guys and they turn into all Americans or first or second round picks. I think those are things that get celebrated. Um, you know, could, I mean, we had Sark on a minute ago and when he was talking about Reggie Bush and some of the players there, it's like, it's not to say that you or I could coach them and they'd still want a Heisman, but you know, there is a, I think there is something to be said for when your players are just that much better. Um, you know, it makes your job easier. I think the part that I think is, is telling though, is when, a, you know, a position coach is with a player and maybe that player flourishes and then that position coach isn't there anymore. And you're wondering like, what happened to that guy? I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it's all anecdotal, but I, again, what are we defining it off of? I mean, I know this when I, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm tweeting out something about this coach is going to get hired at this place, um, you're kind of looking at why did they get hired? Unless you were told by, the head coach, this is why I'm hiring anybody. You usually go to the bio and the bio will give you a note or something because you're basically trying to explain to the audience, okay, here was the appeal of this person. So I think that has to do with it. But, but Kevin's point about like, you're a quarterback whisperer. If you, um, you know, have had a couple of players, I mean, I don't know. I look at, uh, Norm Chow, for instance, he had, a bunch of really good quarterbacks at BYU that he worked with, but then he goes to NC state and he has Phillip rivers, but then at probably one of the better things that I think he would have with his fingerprints on is he had Carson Palmer and Carson Palmer before Chow got there really was like, I think his interception touchdown ratio was like one-to-one. -one, and then he, his last year there, he ends up winning a Heisman. So, you know, how much is factors and how much is the individual coach I mean, it's, it's really hard to say, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, you're just projecting a, a value on certain people. Yeah. I think it's hard to link position coaches in particular. Like, I don't know. There's that many cases where a player thrived and they said, because of his position, maybe offensive linemen, the, the O-line coaches tend to get a lot of credit, but like, you don't hear about a lot of individual running backs, coaches or receivers coaches, but certainly like in Sark's case, like Devonte Smith was there before he got there and caught the game-winning touchdown in the national championship before he got there and was very talented. But I think Sark deserves credit for the system that he drew up and the play calls that he drew up that allowed him to have the kind of year he did, not to say that he would have like never been heard from again if they'd hired somebody else, but probably wouldn't have had this historic season that he did. Okay, Stu, this next question is from Matthew Akers. Stu and Bruce, I love the podcast. How is Stu's scenario concerning college football consolidation different from the old CFA, the College Football Association that ran from the late 70s to the mid 90s. The CFA was established to negotiate TV contracts on behalf of most of college football, and yet it fell apart. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Me too, Stu. By the way, I listened back to that that part of the podcast last week where, we, where I made the case for consolidation, and it was really frustrating. I wish I had pulled out the do I need to get an econ professor in here line a lot sooner than I did? Because you just kept telling me how 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 off the mark I was. And, and But the thing you were trying to say wasn't the point that I was making. We kept talking around each other. The CFA got brought, the CFA is a 
so a little history lesson. The CFA, um, well, let's go back even further. The NCAA controlled all of the TV rights for college football for many decades until there was a lawsuit by Georgia, led by Georgia and Oklahoma that went all the way to the Supreme Court and, um, and they won. And that's what led to the landscape we have today where the individual conferences negotiate these TV deals. Or Notre Dame's case, the individual school. Um, and the CFA was what was formed to negotiate for, to do like a collective negotiation for the for what you would consider to be the power schools. Thing is, they never got all of them. So like what I'm proposing, where you get the 65 power five schools together and sell them as one TV package, the CFA tried to be that, but it never had the Big Ten or the Pac-10. So they were selling Oklahoma, Texas, um, you know, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, et cetera, but they were still missing Ohio State, Michigan, USC, and then Notre Dame bolted to do the, um, oh, I should also add, it was a much different landscape. There were a lot of independents, right? Notre Dame was an independent, Penn State was an independent, uh, and some of those independents started joining, like Penn State went and joined the Big Ten, so they lost them too. So yes, it eventually crumbled. I don't think, you know, it only works if you have total buy-in of every Power Five conference uh, and Notre Dame. Um, not like, okay, we've, we've gotten two of the conferences together, we've gotten three of the conferences together, and we'd like to sell you this package because that would defeat the purpose. The purpose is, is what I said last week. One seller controls the rights to all of the most attractive programs, and it only comes up once every eight to ten years. So, you know, you hold all the leverage in that situation. Okay, Stu, one more question. Michael Donlin. Bruce and Stu, why don't place kickers and punters always translate from high school to college. As a Husker fan, I was spoiled by many quality kickers and punters, but especially in 2019, I saw how the lack of a good kicking game in particular can be the difference between a win and a loss. In other positions, I see the difference in strength, speed, and complexity of the game can be a challenge for players. But kicking and punting seems like they should easily translate. Why can't a kicker who hits a 35-yard field goal in camp and practice do it in a game? Interesting question, and you came to the right person because I once wrote like a 5,000-word story on kicker recruiting uh, for Sports Illustrated. But here's the thing. That actually is the most accurate. Like It sounds like they, they – I don't, I don't follow Nebraska's kicker recruiting very closely. It sounds like somebody didn't come through. But in general, like you're not going to – go through tw- the 247 position rankings. You're not going to find a position that has like fewer busts. Then kicker. Do you know who the number one kicker was? I just pulled this up. 2019, 247, top kicker recruits. Number one, Will Richard, who just had a perfect season for Alabama, right? Uh, number four, Cade York, great kicker for LSU. Um, and, th- and it's not even really like 247 that's dictating this. They, they just call up uh, Jamie Cole and Chris Saylor. Chris Saylor, yeah. Yeah, like... There's no easier position to evaluate because they get them all in one place. Literally, like, every top kicker in the country goes to this one combine, and you watch them kick. Now, is it perfect projection? No. And I think in that case, like, there's the mental aspect of it, right? Like, some guys have the... Like, I, I, don't, I don't think it's very hard to for them to see who has the best leg, um, but you just don't know, like, who's going to handle the... You know, there's no more pressure-packed position than that when you're... 100,000 people waiting to see if you make or miss a field goal that will determine the game. And so some guys handle that pressure just fine and some don't. Um, 
our friend Joe Tessator obviously has a, a great window into that with his son. Um, you know what's so interesting to me, Stu, on that? Um, a few years ago, I want to say it was when Arizona State had a Thursday night game against Utah. The game I remember, the thing I remember most about that particular game was Utah had like 30 TFLs in the game and poor Manny Wilkins was like just pummeled for four quarters. But the day before we were at ASU and I remember I got had a conversation with Zane Gonzalez and he was an All-American kicker at ASU and I want to say... I should know this off the top of my head, but I don't. I want to say it was Jamie Cole I talked to, you know, like I got on the phone where he talked about like this guy had the most, was the most clutch temperament, you know, anybody been, ever been around and just raved about him, right? And as you said a minute ago, like that is the highest praise you can get from somebody who knows the entire industry as he does intimately, right? And so um, he was a seventh round pick of the Browns and I knew he got, I think he got cut not long after. Maybe it was after his rookie year. Um, you know, but it's like to, to draft a kicker in the NFL is not insignificant. A lot of those guys come in as free agents. And I think he was gone from them before his second season was over. Now he landed back in Arizona uh, with the Cardinals. But again, that was like a guy where after I got off the phone, I was like, oh, this guy's going to be like a NFL kicker for 15 years. And just it's it's crazy how it happens. Like a few years ago, um, you know, the Rams had Greg Zerline and he was a huge weapon. Well, he's not, you know, it's like sometimes I think it's like golf where you get something in your head and it just kind of can go south on you in a hurry, you know. And um, it's just a it's a very quirky thing because it's so mental as as you know, so much in your head. And I think that if you can find somebody who is a clutch kicker and reliable for a long time, they're gold. But if not, it's just like you're keeping your fingers crossed and and who knows what. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to to um, which of the top college kickers end up doing well in the pros, does there? Because like of the last five years or so, I'm not sure there was a more renowned college kicker than Roberto Aguayo. And then he got, to, and, and he was drafted in the second round. Like, when did they ever draft a kicker in the second round? And then didn't he get cut, like, after the first season with the Bucks? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really strange about how long some of these guys, like, whatever, you know, however it translates. And again, maybe this is a Joe Tess question because he's become so immersed in that world, can probably talk in greater detail about it but yeah you're talking about aguayo second pick and second round pick has now has been on five teams in five years that being said i just loaded up the 2018 247 kicker recruits number one evan mcpherson who went to florida and became an all-american and i believe turned pro early this past year i don't know hunter pearson number two virginia i don't know that i've ever heard that name um Number three, though, B.T. Potter became Clemson's kicker. Number four, a guy you're familiar with, Cameron Dicker, Dicker the kicker. Um, Jake Penninger, number six, became Penn State's kicker, and so on. So I do think that the high school to college one is pretty reliable. But, man, like, if you turn on the NFL on Sundays, you'll see some kickers who are like, oh, yeah, he was really good in college. And you'll see some kickers you don't even remember playing college football. All right. And on that note. And on that note, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. 
We'll see you next time. Thank you.